All right. So, so this evening we are going to continue with our series on the five W's. Next week we're going to be doing the last one. This evening I've combined two um, so that we can make up uh, time a little bit better. So for those of you who are here for the first time again, um, the five W's um, as it's described um, in, on Wikipedia, for example, is the questions who, what, where, when, why, and maybe how as well. And so what we are wanting to do in this particular series is to ask those questions about Jesus. And to ask those questions about Jesus and how then, by extension, those questions relate to us and to our walk and, and our lives with Jesus. And so the definition of the five W's is basically that whenever you want to fully and completely understand something, you will always ask those questions. Who, what, where, when, why, and how? And it is understood that your understanding of something would be incomplete if you aren't able to answer all of those questions that start with those, with those words. And so we find the five W's used in thesis, in reports, um, journalists use it, um, um, police officers use it in their investigations. And so it's something that is extremely thorough in helping you to understand something that you want to understand in a, in a better way. And so last week, as you know, we looked at the question of what did Jesus come to do? And by extension, what does that have to do with me? And the week before that, we looked at who do people say Jesus is? If you want to catch up with that, those of us are, are, are on the church's website. You can listen to them there. And so this evening, as you can see, we're going to look at the question and consider it of when and where, time and place, and what are the significance um, of those questions. Um, and so the questions are, uh, why did Jesus come at that time? Why did Jesus come 2,024 years ago, um, according to our, our calendar? Um, and we ask questions like, couldn't he have come hundreds of years earlier? Couldn't he have come sooner than that? Um, because if he had come earlier than that, it would have saved creation so much brokenness. Because if he did, there wouldn't have been wars and conflicts if he had come sooner. Um, there wouldn't have been all of the genocides throughout the history of man. Um, there would have been no transatlantic slave trade or racism or so many of the issues that still exist within our society today. And then we ask, why did he have to choose Israel in the Middle East? Why they? Why not China or the Far East? Why not one of the Americas? And why not Africa? We've got some really cool people in Africa. You know, why couldn't also, why couldn't Yahweh accomplish what he wanted to accomplish from heaven? If he is all-powerful, couldn't Jesus be spared 
having to lower himself to come and incarnate himself here on earth, but rather stay in the splendor of heaven and accomplish what it is that he wanted to accomplish from there. And this question about time isn't also just about why God waited so long to send Jesus, but it's also linked to the seeming delays in the redemptive plan of God. And so a question that flows from that, um, thinking in the light of our week of prayer, is if we pray for something, and God knows he's going to give us what we pray for, why does he sometimes make us wait weeks or months or even years before visibly granting um, an answer to our request? Now, there are, of course, a hundred possible answers to that question, but perhaps God's apparent delay may have something to do with God's perfect timing. This year is a, is a basic timetable with conservative estimates of God's major redemptive works in the history of time. Counting from creation and the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, and we notice as we notice those significant moments of seeing God at work, that there are large periods of relatively uneventful history. We see creation, the fall of Adam and Eve, then we wait 2,000 years. Then God calls Abram, who becomes Abraham, then we wait 500 years. Gives the law to Moses, we wait more, and then Jesus comes. And then we wait another 2,000 years. And then we move into the future beyond where we are now, into the time that we are all waiting for the second coming. And then there will be the new heavens and the new earth. And now as we look at that, obviously it becomes clear that God is not silent or inactive during those waiting periods there. But this outline of events shows that God's plan of redemption does seem to occur in small steps that are spread out over long periods of time. And so it seems as though Yahweh has this a different perspective on time than we do. We are a people we are a creation who are obsessed with time. Our entire lives are run on time schedules and calendars. Our evening service starts at six. Some of us don't know that. <laughs> no shade, says Kirk. Um, and we, when we start our days, we go to work, and there's a starting time, and there's an ending time. And then throughout other systems of, of um, operation within our lives, they all run according to schedule. And then we also want things done immediately, where we expect everything to come to us instantly. From our take-a-lot deliveries all the way 
to our praise. While we think like, why we think like that at least is a topic for another day, but why does it seem to us that there is a delay in God's redemptive plan? We feel that way because of the way we engage with time, you know? And so we ask again, like those questions I mentioned earlier, why did he wait so long to choose Abram? Why did he wait so long to give the law and to send Jesus? And why does it seem like he's waiting so long to send Jesus back and to end all of the suffering in the world? And so as we consider these questions, I'd like to try and explain how we believe God understands and operates in our time. And then we'll consider the significance of where. So there's this question of how does God operate in time? Now, while there are many views and perspectives on this, there seems to be a traditional view um, that has been something or an understanding that revolves around the notion that God is timeless in the sense of being outside of time altogether. That is, he exists, but he is not limited to existing in one period or one point in time. Unlike us, whose lives are defined by time, we live in a universe that has four dimensions in length, breadth, height, and time. And everything in this universe that we live in can be measured. I'm not an engineer, but I'm sure engineers here can confirm that. As we're sitting in this auditorium and we look around ourselves, we notice that everything here can be measured. A grain of sand that I brought in on my shoe can be measured. Aspects of the sun, of the moon and stars can be measured. The length of my life can even be measured. And everything in the universe is moving along in the same direction, which is forward and only forward. However, God doesn't operate in ways that are confined to those dimensions. Unlike us, God doesn't trick or move irreversibly only in one direction. And so for God, something doesn't have to be the exact right length or the exact height or the exact age for him to be able to do something with that. He promises us eternal life. And nobody on earth knows what living forever will be like. That is a mystery to us. But such is the mind and the ability of the Lord. He is the beginning and the end. And so I want to try to explain to us how God views and works in time. And I want to use the example of a parade 
This is a um, parade for those of you who will notice. Um, Dicey Kaps or Klopse, and I think that is the, um, I think it's the All Stars from Woodstock, if I'm not mistaken. Now, when you think about time in trying to use this example, think about all of time as this parade. This is all of time. Now, in the parade, you have people in the front over here, you have people all the way at the back over there, and then you have people in the middle over here. Now, think about the front of the parade here as the future, and think about the back as the past, and think about the middle of the parade as the present. Now, in the present part of time, which is the now, you are somewhere in the middle here. And being in the middle, in the present, means that you have experienced the past because you've just walked past there. However, you don't know what's coming up in the future because you can't see it. You're stuck in the middle. And you know that it's there. You know that the future is coming, but you don't know what it will be like because you haven't arrived there yet. And so your experience of time, our experience of time, is limited to the present, to the middle, with a memory and an experience of the past. Now, as we look at that and we consider that example and all of that as being all of time, where would you say God is in that picture? I'll answer it for you. God is the one taking the picture. God is the one... Well done for those of you who answered that correct in your minds. <laughs> God is the one outside of the parade taking the picture. And God is able to see the past, he's able to see the present, and he's able to see the future, but he is also able to insert himself anywhere within that parade, anywhere within time. And so that, I think, helps us understand how and where God is in our time and in our space. If we go back to that um, timeline event, we see how God showed how he interacts with historical events and eras. Living outside of time, God saw all of time orchestrated events to have the desired effect on his plan and the spread of salvation, which is the essence of his plan. And so see the parade picture in that. Do you see the parade there? We see this was the past. This is the present and this is the future over here.
And so in that, we see the value of the past in trying to see how God sees. We see the value of the future, and we see the value of the present. And we see that in the years that he gave us Jesus, what the significance of his life and his ministry on earth was to us. First of all, in order for the world to understand Jesus and his coming, we had to understand why we need Jesus. That was the purpose of the Old Testament and the law, the purpose of the past. And for generations, God blessed, he disciplined, he even cajoled and pled with the Israelites to follow his will and to accept his goodness. And for generations, despite the promises, the blessings and destruction, they weren't able to consistently follow God's will. If Jesus had come before the law, and before the law was substituted, we never would have appreciated fully Jesus' sacrifice. A gift, I think, is most readily accepted and appreciated when it is something that we cannot get for ourselves. And so timing Jesus' arrival was actually extremely strategic and important when we understand that God views all of time as important and that it's not only the immediate present time that is of importance to God. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now we still don't fully comprehend this idea of the fullness of time and what it refers to here, but God has allowed us some hints over time as we've experienced his will in creation. And when we consider the timing of Jesus coming into the world, some of the things we notice is that the world seemed ready culturally for when Jesus arrived and when the gospel started to be spread. And so although the Bible doesn't give us a very clear understanding or very concise reasons as to why Jesus came at that very particular time in history, besides the understanding that it was the fullness of time, there were a number of factors that made it easier to spread his message. And so we notice, as you can see in some of those images there, when he came, when Jesus came, there was an international language that all the sister citizens of the empires in Europe, in the European space, in the Roman Empire spoke, and that was Greek. There was relative peace in the, in the Roman Empire, and they had built and established a great road system that made travel easy, as well as the fact that shipping technology had advanced and so distant nations could be reached. 
Jews were on the lookout for the promised Messiah to deliver them, which was heightened by Roman rule. And then, of course, individuals were seeking for something better in their own lives beyond the state and the state-ordained religions of that particular day and time. Now, those are helpful reasons, and they help us to, to put handles on this mystery, but they also still leave us with questions about the value of Africa <laughs> and the value of the Americas and the value of the Far East to God. And then, of course, Jesus' coming had been predicted in the Old Testament. Signs had been given. Prophecies had been fulfilled. But ultimately, however, the reason for that particular time in history for Jesus to come into the world is known to God alone. And we can only trust in God's providence as he rules all of time, the past the future, and our present. I know that some of those concepts are hard to understand and grasp, and it actually took me a while just to sit and to process this notion of how God is able to operate outside of the dimensions within which I live. But I want to move us on to the question of where. Understanding why God chose Israel as the place for his coming is perhaps um, an easier question to try and answer. Now, if you've been following the news as of late, you would know that talking about the issue of who rightfully owns that little piece of land there, called the promised land by some, Israel or Palestine, as some call it, has become an extremely contentious issue. And it's something that ties itself in with the question of why did Yahweh choose that little piece of land that we have come to call the promised land to give to his people and for Jesus to incarnate himself there. Now, as we know, God chose the ancient Israelites because he had promised Abraham that his descendants would become a great nation and they would occupy the land of Canaan. And we find those, that piece of evidence in Genesis chapter 12 and a few other texts as well. And this is how it is recorded by Moses. He says, now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth they shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took Sarai, 
his wife and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And there are a number of other texts that confirm this promise that God made to Abraham and to his descendants. So the fact is that it is that piece of land in particular that relates to the reason of why God gave it to Abraham and to the Israelites. And the reasons are quite simple in that God was fulfilling his promise to Abraham. And secondly, he wanted Israel to serve as a model nation. Now, I need to mention this as well. Um, and I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail. Um, I, need, I think it needs to be mentioned in the light of what's happening in the Middle East right now. That while God chose to work with the ancient nation of Israel as his chosen people, this decision did not exclude people of other nations, Gentiles as they are called, from coming to understanding God, Yahweh, and serving him as well. God instructed the ancient Israelites that they were to respect peoples of other nationalities who were there before and who came to live among God's chosen people. And there's a lot more that can be said about that particular promise that relates to the land and how it should be understood. But if there's one thing that you remember about the issue of this land, it should be this. We find in the biblical text less of an emphasis on an enduring promise that relates to the land and far more of an insistence to live faithfully as a community of God's people. Yahweh's relationship with the people has always been more important than the people's relationship with the land. And I want to round off with this. And we've spent a little bit more time on time um, than we have on the when, because I think it's more of a mystery than the way. And in future, we'll probably come back to this, but we want to move on to our communion as well. But as I close, you know when, for us, um, we are in the habit of always choosing the very best for ourselves. We want the best tickets and the best seats to the concert. I don't know what it's like when we come to church. Do we, are the best seats at the back or are the best seats up front? You know, we want the best clothes. We want the best house. Even as we are preparing ourselves in our studies, we have, 
we have this vision of arriving at the best outcome for ourselves. And myself, I always want the best piece of cake. You know, and, and, and then on top of that, we want to do things when it suits us. Um, and so it's a case of don't come to me when it's not a good time. But you know, and we, as we think about Jesus, we recognize the fact that Jesus is not like that. As we look at those images of the land of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the city of David, Nazareth, Bethlehem, and all the other places of significance in the promised land, it helps us to understand how God chooses. When we look at this place, when we look at these images that give us an idea of what that place is like, and as we look at it through our Western eyes, geographically, it didn't have much that was desirable about it. In terms of establishing a large city with a strong nation, geographically, that particular place lacked the fundamentals. It's a very dry, arid country. 60% of Israel is desert. And it has this kind of beauty about it that doesn't appeal to everyone. When they, when they first established it, there wasn't sufficient water there to serve a very large population. And if you look around at the topography of this place, with its many mountains and hills there, there wasn't a whole lot of fertile, tillable land to grow a lot of food there. And then it was also disconnected from international markets, either over land or by sea. And so the economy simply was limited in its growth. But what God did was, he took that place that has all of those characteristics that present and carry along with them challenges, challenges related to climate, landscape, and the people would have been called a stiff-necked people. And then there was, along with that, the burden of being tied to these people through a covenant, and these people consistently breaking the covenant, coming back and breaking the covenant. And what God was, he chose that land and he chose that people to be his own. God could actually have waited. And he could have chosen a different place with different people at a different time, but he didn't. And as I think of myself, and by extension, I would imagine some of you as well. Each one of us brings along with us a backstory, a history. 
that gives us as well characteristics. And we bring that into our relationship with the Lord. And I would guess that all of our backstories with all of our baggage would possibly cause him to push away from us. You may not believe that you are the best choice. And yet, just like Israel, the Lord says, I want you. And he says, I want to be in a permanent and an eternal relationship with you. Despite the perspective that you have of yourself, and despite the perspective that you may have of someone else because of their characteristics. You see, God didn't choose me because I'm the best. And he didn't choose Israel because they were the best. He chose me, and I would imagine he chose you, like he chose Israel at that time. He chose us out of pure loving grace.